You're listening to Expanding Horizons, the podcast of the Unitarian Church of South Australia, a home of progressive spirituality and free religious thought and action since 1854. The views expressed in these podcasts are those of the speaker and are not intended to represent the position of the church itself or of the worldwide Unitarian Universalist movement. For more information, visit unitariansa.org.au. everyone. We have a few notices to get through, so I'll uh, deal with those uh, before we try and forget about some of the troubles of the world. So this afternoon there was to be a Vespers service at Shady Grove, our chapel in the hills, but it's too hot, fire danger and all that, so that's not going ahead. I invite everyone to the meditation session that's on this Wednesday. We have a monthly meditation session, 5.30 here. So if you are interested and want to know more, perhaps contact me beforehand. Uh, For those on the Committee of Management, I hope you know who you are. There is a meeting before the service next Sunday, so that's 9 o'clock in the manse. Office hours this week, just Monday and Friday, 9 till 2. I know that some of you are interested in Unitarian Church history. The State Library has just published an online article about the business activities of the Simpson family, one of the great Unitarian families in Adelaide, entitled From Silk Hats to White Goods. They became famous white goods manufacturers, so that sort of makes sense. And I'm sure you can find it online. So State Library, from silk hats to white goods. I also have a notice here, literally, house and dog sitter needed by church member. So I don't think that means somebody needs a house. I think it means they're wanting someone to look after their house and dog. So perhaps see Mary, who's in the red top, if you can think that you or someone you know might want to do that. Thanks, everyone, for donations of toys. We have a nice full basket now, and it's being well used. And uh, that will probably be enough for now. But I do let everyone know that contributions can be made in the foyer afterwards, cash or electronically, and that helps us run. I'd like to acknowledge also that we meet on the traditional lands of the Ghana people. We respect their elders past and present. Now, Brendan is going to play for us, but first I want to stress that everyone is welcome here, no matter what your sexuality, gender, background, ethnicity, whatever. And a special mention that we have Alana with us, who has been to a Unitarian church in the US, I think, so what we do here she won't find completely weird. In any case, everyone is welcome. And I should also make a special mention this time that we have Jane back. So pleased to see Jane. After a 
Oh, she must have been on a world trip. She's been away for that long. Now, Brendan. Brendan's going to be playing some music today by Japanese composer Joe Hisaishi. And he has written a lot of uh, film scores and scores for picture books, which are very popular as well in Japan and around the world. So, Brendan, thank you. The selection of pieces today are from the animation studio, Studio Ghibli. our custom in these services to light the candle on this chalice and it can represent many things. In one aspect it can represent destruction and yet destruction is nothing to be feared or despised any more than construction. In fact it is a necessary part of the cycle of growth in this world and we all carry with us that which we could destroy, that which we could let go of, that which holds us back. We all have the anxieties, the fears, the childhood traumas which can be burnt in the fire and dispensed with so that a beautiful new you can emerge from the ashes. Now, I don't normally talk about international affairs, but... Things have suddenly become very local. So I must say something, I feel, about the local response to what's happening in the Gaza Strip and Israel. I'm specifically responding to terribly unfair and misleading reports in our mass media. A bit of history, quickly. The International Refugee Organisation was formed in 1946 to manage the millions of European refugees in the wake of World War II. It was a forerunner of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, which has been going since 1952. But after the first Arab-Israeli War of 1948, to the Israelis, the War of Independence, to the Palestinians, Al-Nakba, or the Catastrophe, the newly declared State of Israel campaigned for a separate agency to consider the welfare of Palestinian refugees. The problem was that the IRO was in the business of repatriating refugees back home or finding them a home. So when Israel was campaigning for European Jews to arrive in Israel, it would have been a contradiction for the IRO to also be working to repatriate the three-quarters of a million or so Palestinians who had fled in fear during that war because their homes were in the new state of Israel. Accordingly, in 1949, the United Nations Refugee Welfare Agency was formed, UNRWA, 
as they say, the organisation was given the brief solely to help Palestinian refugees who were then, in, and as they still are now, in Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, and their descendants. The Israeli government has long criticised UNRWA as it sustains the Palestinian refugee populations in neighbouring countries. Refugee populations meaning those 1948 refugees and their descendants. There is anxiety in Israel because many of those Palestinians express a wish to return to their ancestral home, now within the borders of the State of Israel. And UN Resolution 194 gives those people a right to return to their homes. More than half of the population of Gaza before Israel's attack recently were refugees and their descendants from what is now the State of Israel. UNRWA is currently the only agency distributing food in the Gaza Strip on a large scale. Almost no food is locally produced. Cutting the bulk of donor funds will inevitably lead to famine, according to a senior UN official, meaning that widespread starvation will shortly commence. Now, the International Court of Justice on 26th January ruled that Israel and parties to the Genocide Convention, which includes Australia, quote, take immediate and effective measures to enable the provision of urgently needed basic services and humanitarian assistance to address the adverse conditions of life faced by Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, unquote. On the same day as the ICJ ruling, the Israeli government, in fact, the... Uh, defence intelligence section of the government, made allegations that 12 people out of the 13,000 UNRWA employees were involved in the terrible 7th October terrorist attack on Israelis. Later reduced to allegations of just four employees, no firm evidence has yet come to light publicly, implying that the only evidence of wrongdoing comes from the interrogation of Hamas fighters captured on or after 7th October. It is worth noting that UNRWA shares their Gaza employee list with Israel every year. Withdrawal of US and Australian funding, which followed the day after the allegations were aired, will literally lead to less food being distributed to hungry people in Gaza. A recent survey of civilians there found that 90% went without food entirely in one of the last three days. Now, here's my point. Twice in the last week, the Murdoch media has referred to UNRWA as a terrorist organisation, without quotes, but purely on the basis of unpublished allegations, or at least the details of which have not been made publicly available. So I say that our Unitarian principles, including our commitment to truth, justice and democracy, invite us to view all mainstream media somewhat cynically and try to be aware of the profound bias. We are literally the targets of wartime propaganda. Now with that, a change of pace, let us turn to a hymn. Sheets have been handed out for you, though I do speak with bravest fire. I hope you'll sing along. Brendan will play the whole thing and then we'll stand if you are able and sing together. Thank you.
And now we come to another regular part of our service where we have the opportunity to light a candle and express a joy or concern that we might have. If there are no others, I'll just like a final candle to represent those joys and concerns we have in our hearts, but are not sharing just at this time. Please join me in a moment of silence and contemplate what we've heard. Let us celebrate the peace of mind that comes for many of us growing older and let us pray for peace in the world around us with our family and friends but also those struggling with conflict around the world. May it be so. And now I'll invite David up to give a reading for us this morning from Carl Jung's work, Psychology and Alchemy. Since the practical chemical work was never quite free from the unconscious contents of the operator, which found expression in it, it was, at the same time, a psychic activity which can best be compared with what we call active imagination. This method enables us to get an active grasp of things that also find expression in dream life. The process is in both cases an irrigation of the conscious mind by the unconscious and it is related so closely to the world of alchemical ideas that we are probably justified in assuming that alchemy deals with the same or very similar processes as those involved in active imagination and in dreams, that is, ultimately with the process of individuation. Perhaps I can throw it open to you at the moment for a, a shout out. What is alchemy? What do you think? Is alchemy change? Yes. Definitely involves change. Transformation. Well? Literally, it's the changing of death and ice metals into Certainly it is famous for the pursuit of changing base metals like lead into gold and that's certainly part of our story today. So I talk about alchemy because of that very fact that it's about change, it's about transformation. It's been described in art, in spiritual writings and in psychology in many ways and we are here to transform ourselves in this place, in this community. If nothing else, we are here to transform ourselves, to become more loving, kinder people. And sometimes we need to burn off, to let go of those things, those fears and anxieties which hold us back. The literature and imagery of alchemy is amazing. Before turning to the spiritual interpretations of alchemical imagery, which became prevalent in the 19th century, and the psychological interpretations, which became known in the 20th century, I begin with some history. The fact is that humans have always tried to manipulate nature 
for their benefit. And I realise there's even a definition problem there because we're part of nature, aren't we? But in terms of inert matter, metals and so on, humans for many thousands of years have sought to manipulate them for human benefit. And I'm talking about not just selfish purposes, but healing, inventions of all kinds. So please forgive me for being culturally biased, but I'll leave aside the ancient story of alchemy in India and China. There, as in the West, intelligent people sought to understand the chemistry of things, and they expressed themselves philosophically and esoterically, as well as technically. References to the various stages of progress, mythological creatures, even tantric practices, had their correlations in the Western alchemy literature. Meanwhile, back in Alexandria, even after the Romans conquered Egypt, it was one of the great Greek cities of the world. And 2,000 years ago, there were philosophers and adherents of diverse religions, and they were rubbing shoulders, sometimes the same people, as those studying the workings of the earth and the heavens. They had all read Aristotle and Plato. Aristotle, showing his predilection for certainty, had presented the world as a combination of four elements, air, water, earth and fire. He determined that all matter was a combination of these elements, just in different ratios. And this was important for the thinking of alchemists because it implied that if the technician could just alter the ratio of the elements within a substance, it would be transformed into a different substance altogether. So while trying to manufacture gold, among other things, Alexandrian scientists developed some useful techniques. For example, distillation of liquids and an elementary steam engine. If you like a drop of whiskey, you can thank the old Alexandrian alchemists. Of course, the term alchemy hadn't been coined then. As the Muslim empire spread through the Middle East and North Africa, old and new advances in the understanding of nature were shared in Arabic. Those who studied the qualities of metals were studying alchem, from which we derived the word alchemy. And English also took the words elixir and alcohol from them. Just as in the later European Renaissance, people of that period usually excelled in multiple disciplines. It wasn't unusual for an alchemist to be a philosopher, an astronomer, and a writer all at the same time. And from ancient times, alchemists expressed themselves in esoteric language and symbols. Out of the Greek and Arabic periods of alchemical explorations came philosophical works such as the Emerald Tablet and Turba Philosophorum, the Congress of the Philosophers, in English. And these works seem to express a mystical understanding of the world. For example, the maxim you may have heard, as above, so below, was taken as a fundamental truth. And putting it simply, it suggests that correspondences may be found between the physical, emotional, mental and spiritual aspects in a given case. Europe had come out of centuries of sluggish growth in terms of the economy and the realm of knowledge when alchemy arrived in 1144. Robert of Chester, 
translated the composition of alchemy from Arabic to English. The medieval English alchemists followed the example of their Arabic and Greek forebears by writing in esoteric and guarded language. Through their processes, they hoped to change one substance to another in a world where the official belief was that God had created everything as it was and as it should be. Created by God, the end. In other words, to seek transmutation of one metal to another ignited moral debates like we have now when scientists talk of cloning animals. Yet they carried on with their experiments. These alchemists were not fringe dwellers hidden away in secret laboratories. The notable scientists of the day, such as Sir Isaac Newton, educated themselves and carried out experiments in alchemy as well. There were a couple of major European developments which made all of this possible. The Protestant Reformation of the 1500s caused the intellectuals of the day to question whether traditional church views of creation and matter were necessarily true. And secondly, philosophers such as Descartes encouraged what we now accept as scientific method. In other words, gathering the evidence to see what hypothesis best fits as a conclusion. In Aristotle's day, it was more common to imagine a conclusion and then search for the evidence to back it up, just like politicians do today. <laughs> and there was a fair degree of common approach among the European alchemists. I mean, this was not just in England, but right through the Western European nations. Most acknowledged seven or 12 steps towards transforming one substance to another. I won't go through them all in detail, but a fellow called Ripley um, went into some detail about the 12-stage process, and that could be shortened to a seven-stage process. In summary, three or four stages, some kind of dissolution or going into a weaker form of the substance, usually involving heating it, then some period of incubation and unifying, which could be through adding other substances and sealing uh, the substance being transformed, and then an expansive process. And these stages were illustrated in the colours, black for the time of dissolving or destroying, white and yellow for the stage of growth and incubation, and finally red in a positive, expansive stage at the end. Sulfuric acid was important to the dissolution process. And the Latin word for it was vitriol. You know when someone speaks of you vitriolically, that you feel burning. At the same time, there were these curious mystical expressions tied to the alchemist's art. Vitriol, for example, was said to be an acronym for Visita interiora terrae rectificando invenies occultum lapidem. In other words, search within the earth, rectifying, and you'll find the hidden stone. And despite these obscure mystical descriptions, it's not as if the alchemists didn't find some success in their laboratories. In their search for a universal solvent, they discovered hydrochloric acid, which when combined with nitric acid could dissolve gold. 
They also discovered how to manufacture potassium nitrate, an essential ingredient of gunpowder. And of course, if you produce enough gunpowder, you get the gold. So maybe alchemy did work after all. Incidentally, the middle part of the chemical process typically required ingredients to be enclosed together, having no contact with the outside air. And the airtight seal was known as the seal of Hermes. It's a long story, but this is a reference to Hermes Trismegistus, a legendary Greek-Egyptian sage. And from this alchemical practice, we talk about things even today being hermetically sealed. The first half of the 1600s in England was an extraordinary time for those exploring spiritual beliefs. Unitarianism was introduced to England from Eastern Europe. George Fox commenced preaching his Quaker's view of God. And alchemy was peaking in popularity among those investigating the physical world. Alchemists such as Thomas Vaughan definitely seemed to be crossing over from literal laboratory experimentation into a mystical understanding of the world. And we'll come to some of his work in a moment. But talking about alchemical literature generally, the 20th century American poet and essayist, Kenneth Rexroth, said, quote, It is as though a textbook of chemistry, another of mining engineering, another of gymnastics and breathing exercises, another of pharmacology, several sex manuals, and many treatises of transcendental mysticism had been torn to pieces and not just mixed up together, but fused into a totally new chemical compound of thought. <laughs> Whoa. All right, let's have an example. Cleo's going to come forward and read us what I have described as a weird poem. An extract from Thomas Vaughan's Colum Terrae, Heaven on Earth. So... Cleo, over to you. I give you faculties, both male and female, and the powers of both of heaven and earth. The mysteries of my art are to be performed magnanimously and with great courage. If you would have me overcome the violence of the fire, in which attempt many have lost both their labour and their substance, I am the egg of nature known only to the wise, such as are pious and modest who make of me a little world. Ordained I was by the almighty God for men, but though many desire me, I am given only to few, that they may relieve the poor with my treasures and not set their minds on gold that perishes. I am called Mercury by the philosophers. My husband is gold, philosophical. I am the old dragon that is present everywhere on the face of the earth. I am father and mother, youthful and ancient, weak and yet most strong. Life and death, visible and invisible, hard and soft, descending to the earth and ascending to the heavens. Most high and most low, light and heavy. In me the order of nature is often inverted, in colour, number, weight and measure. I have in me the light of nature. I am dark and bright. I spring from the earth and I come out of heaven. I am well known and yet a mere nothing. All colours shine in me and all metals by the beams of the sun. I am the carbuncle of the sun, a most noble clarified earth, by which you may turn copper, iron, tin and lead into most pure gold. Now, I'll invite... Brendan up 
to play some more music so that we might contemplate that. One summer's day. I just want to highlight a couple of themes that are really quite typical of the alchemical literature of the 15 and 1600s that are in that piece by Thomas Vaughan. I give you faculties both male and female. Now there was a lot um, written by the alchemists about the combination of male and female qualities the conjunction and Jung in particular saw much in this. Jung of course identified that we all have our male and female components arising perhaps from our upbringing but also from archetypal images which we can all tap into and we need to come to terms with both the male and female sides of ourselves whatever is meant by male and female. I also find it interesting the mention of the violence of the fire which must be overcome. What is the basis of your strongest passions? What is that fire in you that compels you perhaps beyond what you would prefer to be doing? It is said that in working to temper that fire Many have lost both their labour and their substance, meaning that some have wasted their effort, some have depleted their energy in trying to grapple with this issue, whether it is literally in the laboratory or if we take the later, the modern interpretations, grappling with overcoming the passions in ourselves. There's the reference there to the gold which perishes and that does seem to be a really vital clue to understanding this type of literature because there's all this talk about turning lead into gold but that's the gold that does perish, that's the gold that you put in your storehouse to be rich. But what is the gold that doesn't perish? That is the highest goal. So the next major development really was the advances in what we think of as modern chemistry in the hundred years or so after Thomas Vaughan wrote that piece. And the alchemical ideas or fantasies about transforming one substance to another were disabused by people like Boyle and Lavoisier, people who we still remember for work on the study of elements and chemical reactions basic laws of physics, and so on. And then I jump forward to the Victorian era, the latter half of the 19th century. 
It was not only an exploration era for the far reaches of the British Empire, but it was a great era of internal exploration as well. Living stone, I presume. Those who couldn't subscribe to the traditional Christian viewpoint discovered diverse options which echoed ancient mysteries. The Theosophical Society was created. Ideas from Hinduism became popular in minority circles in London and around the UK. Masonic and Rosicrucian societies flourished. Interest grew in religions of long ago. In that context, a couple of European writers found that the allegorical writing of alchemy could perfectly well be interpreted as a blueprint for spiritual growth. Margaret Atwood in the 1850s and later Mircea Eliade promoted a perennial philosophy, the notion that pantheism, that God was everywhere, could be extended to the idea that we can imagine Christ within us, a Christ principle, not a person, and that we could develop this spark of divinity through the means described in the alchemist literature. In the middle of the 20th century, I'll just perhaps I'll pause because many people have interpreted the old uh, processes of alchemy in terms of self-development or spiritual growth, recognizing our faults, engaging and releasing our faults, being united with something greater than ourselves, initiated into a greater awareness, and through that process of introspection, attaining a higher state, whatever that might be. So now I come to Carl Jung, who developed a psychological interpretation of the old chemical writings. He worked on the basis that it had always been pseudoscience, which could never have produced substantial results. And this allowed him to conclude that the alchemists' esoteric writings revealed a projection of their own unconscious impulses onto the physical materials with which they worked. And consequently, Jung considered it possible to use the alchemical reasoning and language to understand one's own unconscious impulses and blockages. In 1943, Jung published an entire volume called Psychology and Alchemy. He considered human wholeness was the goal of the psychotherapeutic process. And he found that many symbols, including alchemical symbols and metaphors, are to be found in the unconscious depths of our psyche. He wrote, quote, This question is inextricably bound up with one's philosophical or religious assumptions. Even when, as frequently happens, the patient believes themselves to be quite unprejudiced in this respect, the assumptions underlying the patient's thought, mode of life, morale and language are historically conditioned down to the last detail, the fact of which the person is often kept unconscious by lack of education combined with lack of self-criticism. I am faced with the task of taking the only path open to me, the archetypal images must be brought into consciousness. At the same time, I must leave my patient to decide in accordance with their assumptions, their spiritual maturity, their education, origins and temperament, so far as this is possible, without serious conflicts. As a doctor, it is my task to help the patient cope with life. 
I cannot presume to pass judgment on their final decisions because I know from experience that all coercion, whether by suggestion, insinuation or any other method of persuasion, ultimately proves to be nothing but an obstacle to the highest and most decisive experience of all, which is to be alone with their own self. And I quote that at length because I believe it is something like the experience that we have in this community. As we encounter each other without judgment, we all have our own history, education and levels of maturity that we bring to participation here and our conversation with others. But through the discussion of these ideas and the contemplation of some of the themes that come up, perhaps we can get to a higher state. And we need to know that where there have been dark times in our lives, that that is part of the cycle of spiritual growth. And that some of those traumatic events, some of those hurts, need to be burnt in the flame or as commonly expressed, we need to let go of those things which are holding us back. There is a natural grieving process, a natural adjustment to the reality of life. But through that we become more mature, more resilient and more capable of making the choice to be kinder people. And that's what alchemy is about for us. Let's hear some final music from Brendan. Ashitaka and San. hope you've enjoyed this Expanding Horizons podcast. These podcasts are the intellectual property of the presenter. They can be used only with the express permission and appropriate acknowledgement of the presenter. This permission can be obtained by emailing admin at unitariansa.org.au. Please feel free to leave a comment or visit us on Facebook or Twitter by searching SA Unitarians or by visiting our website at unitariansa.org.au.